0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Gulliver of the Washington Post and, of course, the book Bubble Ball. And we have a really fun conversation, talk about not only the conference finals, but the series that came before it, what we can take away, what we're expecting moving forward, but also Ben's experience in the room for the NBA draft lottery, in the physical room with the ping pong balls and all that. It's a pretty cool story. And talk a little bit about the offseason that's coming up pretty soon. Lots of fun stuff here. Conversation runs about an hour and is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code to get a 50% welcome bonus and tell them it came from us. So hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure, Danny. It's been far too long, man. How are you? Doing well, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I got to say, it was maybe the wildest logistical week of my riding career over the last seven days. It was Memphis, then Milwaukee, then Boston, then Chicago for the draft lottery, and then San Francisco with you last night for the Warriors. You know, pretty dominant game one blowout win over Dallas. A lot of really good playoff basketball. A lot of amazing crowds this year after two pandemic years where it always just kind of felt a little bit off, Um even last year during the playoffs, I just feel like the NBA is in a great spot. TV ratings have been through the roof, which is always nice to see everybody um, you know, appreciating the sport. And I'm just kind of on cloud nine, to be honest. I imagine you feel the same way.
0: I do. And it's also a fascinating year from the perspective that I, I was talking about this with Nate at one point, that like I th- I'd have to go back and look to be sure, but I believe only three or four of my top 10 players in the league the last time we did rankings are still in the playoffs. But... I don't you don't necessarily feel that absence too much I think that yeah it sucks that Embiid and Jokic like all three all three all four actually of the top MVP vote getters are out but you have still great players that are leading these teams and some of them are very young and ascending you know what Jason Tatum did in the first half of game one against the Heat and of course he's had a really nice playoff run on top of that and Luka of course with the Dallas Mavericks but you also have some really fun ensemble Teams and that's something that I really appreciate. And in a year where there isn't that super team, there isn't the, the those LeBron Heat teams or the or the best of the Warriors or anything else, ensembles can be pretty dang fun. Oh, for sure.
1: And I think you've just got some really hard playing teams across the board. I mean, I think these final four teams that advanced to the uh, conference finals, like all really earned it, and they they were all really clicking in their series as they unfolded and got deeper and deeper. I mean, they just kept you know picking up their intensity level basically all of them can play defense at a very high level and you do have the the stars on offense every single team's got a shining star on offense whether it's uh you know Tatum Jimmy Luke uh, you know Steph Curry maybe even throw Jordan Poole into the mix every once in a while uh, earlier in the playoffs I mean it's it's a really nice mix of balanced teams that are focused in together, and together and that's sort of what you're looking for to me it's been a natural progression though right I mean it's it's sort of like we saw Tatum in the bubble a couple of years ago he wasn't quite ready for it you know we saw Luke could go against the Clippers, I mean, just kind of an ultimate martyr ball performance sort of, you know, in the last couple of years He's doing everything he can possibly do, and yet coming up short against a veteran team just loaded with defenders to throw at them, now it's their moment. You know, I felt like going into last night, it wasn't like Luka was in the shadow of the Warriors, even though the Warriors are this monolith that's won all these championships in the past and have so much more experience, and they have Steph Curry who's still, you know, probably the, the biggest name left in these playoffs, but Luka was sort of on equal footing there. You know, and, and same deal with Tatum when he was able to, uh, you know, knock out the Bucks and and Giannis in those last couple of games. I think everyone would pretty much agree Giannis is the best player in the sport right now. He showed that consistently against the Celtics, but it wasn't some fluke when Tatum's going crazy down the stretch of these fourth quarters and hitting step back jumpers off one leg and, and shooting three pointers. Like both Luca and Tatum have made that natural progression. They're in the mix and they're vying for titles. And uh, you know that's an, an age old story in the NBA, but it's nice to see some new faces
0: do it. It is, and I'm really happy you brought up defense, because I think that's one of the important takeaways of these playoffs so far, and things could have gone differently with a few different, you know, injuries and results, but when you think about the four teams that are left, if you use cleaning the glasses, defensive ratings, that filters out garbage time, full season, three of the top four teams on defense are in in the conference finals, and then the other one is Dallas, and Dallas was one of the best defensive teams once they kind of flipped that switch in January, and so, and some of the Other teams that were in this mix, Phoenix got eliminated in a Game Seven. Memphis nearly made it. If Jaw gets hurt, if Jaw doesn't get hurt, they could very well have been in this conversation as well. And that ties in with something that we had generally been seeing, kind of before the bubble and the you. We saw the some of the anomalous shooting and everything else was that defense wins championships, especially if they can be versatile. Especially if you have high-end defenders and you've traveled all over over this last week plus. And something that I've noticed and you've gotten to see a fair amount. of it firsthand defense high-end talent makes a huge difference but I've grown really in these playoffs to appreciate it's also about the lack of weak points the lack of sore spots because then you have to do a lot of scheming a lot of planning to deal with that and I mean a lot of these teams that are left the Celtics when they're at full strength are a great example of this Miami plays very few bad defenders in the rotation as well are ensemble defenses too well, it's
1: a great point. The, the, the teams I would highlight to help uh, further that point would be Milwaukee and Boston in that series. So in Milwaukee, there was glaring weak points um, with their offense on the wings, right? I mean, you had Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, Wesley Matthews. Like, they couldn't hit a shot. They basically contributed nothing offensively. And, you know, that's just a natural instinct as a media analyst, as a fan, to kind of pile on those guys. Be like, what's wrong with them? Like, why, you know, why are they holding everybody back? And you go back and watch how Boston was defending them. They had no room to breathe. I mean, Boston's rotations were so crisp that, like, yeah, look, if, if you're giving Grayson Allen you know, fifteen feet on a three-pointer, and he's missing. Like that's really frustrating. But if every single shot he's taking is is contested, and he's not really a great off-the-dribble player, and when he's going off the dribble, he's running into Al Horford and Boston's bigs who are smart and savvy and kind of clogging up the lane, and then they're able to defend him without fouling. Which I thought Boston, you know, in some key moments of that series, you know, was was very physically imposing without getting too rough and getting too sloppy and, and getting into foul trouble. Like, yeah, those those weaker, one-dimensional offensive players are going to start to disappear, and so it was a case to me of, like, you know, does Milwaukee's offense have uh, more weak links or Boston's defense? And after seven games, we saw it was Milwaukee's offense. And the other thing on the defensive front, to me, with everybody spreading out so much, and this goes for, uh, you know, Dallas's offense in terms of how they go five out. This goes for Golden State. I mean, they've been playing spread basketball for an awful long time, um, and Boston as well. I mean, they've got a lot of shooters that they could put in. The defensive aspect to keep up with those spread lineups requires young legs it requires guys who are in great condition it requires hugely motivated players and i think in some cases uh, the age factor and just the, you know the ability to survive that marathon is an under discussed uh, aspect right like i look at phoenix uh, you know it's easy to just say well they mentally crumbled uh you know cp3 he just doesn't have the right mindset to win the playoffs he's never going to do it I think he just got tired. I mean, you look at the Brooklyn Nets. They looked pretty tired, even though it was a short series. They didn't really have the legs to run around and chase all those Celtic shooters. And so I don't think it's a huge surprise that a lot of these 30-plus stars either didn't even make the playoffs in the first place in LeBron's case. But some of these other guys are just getting picked off as we go um, just because of the sheer energy that's required to play high-level defense when everybody can shoot and everybody can space um, at this stage of the postseason.
0: The exception also proves the rule there, and that is tied into just be Butler like Jimmy Butler's performance especially in that third quarter of game one of the Eastern Conference Finals was spectacular doing it on both ends had a couple of huge steals and and dunks but he also offensively got to the line I believe 10 times and Jimmy Butler you know he he, they have a lot of young leagues around him and Bam and PJs PJs are older but you know like and and they can play a rotation with a lot of other guys Gabe Vincent had a much better game one than he had the later stretch of the series against Philly and so for Miami they're doing it in in a little bit of a different way, but it does kind of tie in with this story, of course, too, because the defensive intensity and intelligence that they play with is fantastic. Yeah, they do have some new younger
1: legs they didn't have in the bubble playoffs, you know, a couple of years ago. But I also look at like Jimmy and PJ Tucker as being like top one percent guys in the NBA for squeezing the absolute most out of their capabilities, right? Yes. And like that counts for something too. And um, you know, we're going to see like as this series with the Celtics unfolds. I thought Miami had a very impressive game one. I left game. One, pretty impressed by Boston, too. I mean, to be down two starters with Smart and Horford, who are very important starters, right, and still have the Robert Williams thing, doesn't seem like it's completely cleared up. To be up in that game and to be functioning just kind of on the fly on a short turnaround without two main guys, um, that was you know pretty darn impressive from Boston. And so I think as that series unfolds, You're going to be testing PJ Tucker's legs, right? You're going to be testing Jimmy Butler a little bit, um, you know, from that longevity standpoint. And I I do do think at at times of last year's postseason, we saw PJ just, you know, be more reluctant to shoot, um, in some cases, just really wayward three-pointers as the series unfolded. Now, he didn't hold Milwaukee back from winning the championship. I mean, he still gave them a lot of really important minutes, but um, he was, at times, to me, exposed a little bit on the offensive end, uh, you know, deeper in the postseason, and and we're reaching that time where, like, okay, well, people are trying to snipe off somebody who might give here, uh, is he a candidate in this series as it gets to, say, games four, five, six, and beyond?
0: it's definitely a possibility and something I was thinking about before we recorded I wanted to flash back to about two and a half weeks ago and the start of the preceding series and so you know we just had these two game ones with impressive performances by the home team two weeks ago roughly when the semifinals started Milwaukee handily beat Boston and I started panicking about picking the Celtics in the series and Golden State had that (laughs) weird game where Draymond got ejected right before halftime and they came back and beat Memphis anyway Miami handled Philly without Embiid and then Phoenix? was dominant in their win over the Dallas Mavericks and the Mavericks looked flat and they're like, oh great, what, what, they beat the Jazz, but is that really something? And that only to me serves as a reminder of these series are really long, they will have a lot of ebbs and flows, and I'm really happy you brought up Smart and Horford because Miami played great, especially in that third quarter. It looks like we're going to see some different personnel in game two, not only because Marcus Smart and Al Horford might be back, but because Tarek White is out due to personal reasons.
1: For sure. Well, you know, last night when Steph Curry was asked um, just sort of about the challenge or, you know, the opportunity, I guess, of, of reaching the finals and winning another title, and he made the comment, you know, we're super comfortable on this stage, right? Like we've been here before. I think this is his sixth Western Conference finals in the past eight years. Um, And, you know, winning a big game one, as he said, does not necessarily win you the series, right? And I think um, that level of poise and that experience has really come through for them. And I think from Boston's standpoint as well, um, there was multiple chances for them to break mentally against Milwaukee and lose that series. Um, And they came through huge. Game four, Jason Tatum down the stretch. Obviously, they're down 3-2. They win back-to-back elimination games. And so uh, I think that there's a little mix of, okay, well, some of these players, now have the experience factor to understand that like, you know, that whole first to four cliche is a real deal and like don't psych yourself out early in a series. But I have also think we've seen some really good coaching and some really good adjustments. I mean, Ime Udoka for a rookie coach does not seem like a rookie in the slightest in this postseason. Um, you know, I, I thought he did a, a really nice job of trying to wear down Giannis, of even trying to manipulate the referees and the calls at certain points um, during that series. Um, and then obviously if you look around everywhere else, uh, you know, in, in its bracket, uh, whether it's or, or Steve Kerr, you've got some great coaches there. And, and Jason Kidd, I think it's maybe been one of the biggest shocks of all, but like how they took away Chris Paul, how they were able to limit Devin Booker in that second round series was pretty impressive work by them. So um, you know, I, I think the, the idea of these you know, series not being done early, don't overreact to, to game one is important. And the other factor on that I would go back to is the home court advantage deal. It is such a more vibrant atmosphere. I'm sure you're feeling it at Chase. Um, this year, throughout the postseason, where I think Golden State's still undefeated at home, yeah. but you know these series swing in a big way when they change venue, going from Game Two to Game Three, right? Like, look at the Memphis series when they had the opportunity to be at home and just how rowdy that place got, how good they looked in Game Five, and I think that's part of it too. Like, you know, guys like Curry or the Celtics or everything else, like even if they go down two zero, Boston, I don't think that they're psyched out, feeling like we can't win this series. They just watched Philly, who was a much lesser team, win a couple games games at home against Miami in games three and four, right? And so um I, I think the power of the crowd here is a major factor that was missing in the bubble and was sort of half missing last year and now it's really back. I mean I can go right down the list. I mean like the the whoof the trick uh you know experience in Memphis was absolutely insane. I mean what a pressure cooker. I can't believe Draymond was laughing along during the middle of that I definitely would have folded if I was in their spot. Uh, you go to T D Garden game seven, I mean they've got fans dressed up in full hunting camo, um, trying to end the Bucks season, you know, you know, with all these uh, hunting-type puns on their signs. Uh, you know, you see Chase Center last night, I mean, the fans were going to be a little bit late to get there because of the early tip, uh, but they were getting excited in that third-quarter push when Steph's hitting the, the tap dance three-pointers and Lucas turning the ball over, and so I think that kind of uh, contributes to the, the steadiness throughout a series, you know, realizing, like, you know, if you're on the road and you lose Game 1, like, there's still plenty of time left.
0: The ultimate example to that, to me, and the current playoffs is the Dallas Mavericks in the last series where they got worked in those first two games by the Phoenix Suns and then they looked amazing in their first two home games and then it kind of I wrote them off yeah did you write them off after game two like I didn't write them off, but I didn't expect I, I didn't expect the series to be a long. I, I thought it was going to be maybe five or something like that. Like Dallas was good enough that they could have gotten a split and everything else like that. But also, like Phoenix was, you know, we I think I can't remember exactly when Chris Paul turned thirty seven, but it was right around then. And so it's like they they were looking good. The the small concerns I had about them, you're like, oh, well, it looks like it's not at least going to be a problem then. And the Warriors had been much more inconsistent. So, like you're looking at the Warriors and the Grizzlies, like oh, can either of these teams keep pace with the Suns? Runs. And then it's like, oh well, neither of them has to play them anymore. It was <laughs> yeah. and, and that's how a playoff series can and, and should move is that you have these shifts as as and as you mentioned, the home crowds are are a lot of fun. And one of my bigger takeaways from the game ones is we got in each of them, and you had very different preceding times to this, but I think in both cases, the third quarter was a model for the home team of if it's going to go well, this is how it's going to go well and we can start with the Warriors that was the best defense I've seen them play in a while and they had I mean the Warriors were an unbelievable defensive team at the beginning of this year but if if we're factoring in the intensity of the playoffs and everything else this is the best defensive stretch they had played in years And Andrew Wiggins was fantastic. They were doing some really nice digs off the corner to make life harder on Luka. And their offense was flowing better than in the first half. And so the theory of this Warriors team being able to take it up to another level, being able to go in the way back machine, even without Andrew Goodall and Gary Payton II, to do something to get the Mavericks off rhythm in a way that Phoenix never really did. Like they're very different defensive teams, though both of them are wonderful. And then get enough offensively through system buckets and through having really good players to get more more than they needed to you know to, to get the win.
1: Yeah, to me, it was just a vintage third quarter push from Golden State. Like, it did feel like the time machine. You know, I I went up to the Clay Thompson return game, and the crowd was so excited for that. And, you know, he actually, like, played beyond my expectations in that game. I mean, obviously, he was, like, running on pure adrenaline. And that was the first moment where I was actually, like, thinking to myself, wow, I know Golden State's had a really good record. I know they've got Steph. I know they've got Draymond. But, like, this does feel like a team that could definitely win the title this year. And I would not want to have to go to chase and play these guys in the playoffs because they're just so comfortable and they're just so used to those kinds of moments and I thought the third quarter, I mean, they were in control of the game already, you know, coming out of halftime, right? And it was just, uh, we're going to accelerate to sixth gear. you're not going to be able to keep up with us, and anytime you make a mistake, we are going to make you pay for it in the worst way possible, right? It's like, Luka turnover goes the other way, Steph Curry three. Luka turnover goes the other way, and I think it's like a dunk, like in a back-to-back possessions there, and at that moment, it's like, if your shoulders don't slump, if you're the Mavericks, there's at least the thought in your head of like, we're not winning this game. This is over already, you know, even though these are there's still like you know 20 plus minutes left in that ball game, and uh, it did feel a lot like 2015, 2016, 2017. I mean, this team's um, ceiling is not nearly as high as peak Warriors, right? And their baseline is much shakier as we saw in that Memphis series than sort of the best versions of the Warriors. But this team is really good. I mean, they're still really, really good, and, and their defensive intensity and their just uh, general approach to Luka was smart. I mean, make him work, try to tire him out. Um, um, you know, try to make sure that Steph doesn't get isolated. Protect Steph if you're if you're able to um, defend without fouling. Take advantage of turnovers. I mean, all that stuff I'm sure is what Kerr talks about in the pregame speech. And just to watch it all come together, I mean, he had to be just absolutely thrilled by that. Uh, the other thing I'd point out too, though, is your defense is going to look amazing when uh, Dallas shoots that poorly. They yes. are such a high variance team in terms of their three pointers. I mean, number one in three point attempts in this postseason by a pretty comfortable margin and it goes back to the home road splits like I I haven't checked the numbers but I imagine they're supporting guys shoot an awful lot better at home than they do on the road and a lot of those guys have never been on that big of a stage right and I I don't think they looked fully shook but like Jalen Brunson pretty invisible Dorian Finney-Smith a guy who I absolutely love and I want to see him let's start a campaign Danny let's get him on uh, the USA basketball's World Cup team or even the potentially the Olympic team it's just like that designated stopper guy they always have one of those I would love to see him in that particular role. Uh, Maybe we could get a Luka versus Dorian Finney-Smith, like, international showdown, you know, (laughs) teammates at some point in the future. But he was terrible in Game 1. You know, it's a guy I want to root for, but he was bad all around in Game 1. And and some of their other guys just didn't seem like they were quite ready for the moment. So I think they're going to settle in. I definitely think those guys will play better and shoot better in Game 3. But as much as we like the LeBron comparisons for Luka, um, I think that, you know, Pete LeBron, especially going against the Warriors, even if his teammates weren't shooting well, he would be able to do more every single night consistently than Luca was able to do in Game One. I just thought it was kind of like a C game from Luca, you know, not his best effort by any stretch. And you combine that with the lack of shooting, and you know, in Dallas just didn't really stand a chance. So that's no knock on Luca. Look, he's 23 years old. It's amazing that he's on this stage. He has a real chance to win a title if they're able to kind of turn this series around. Um, and, and he's definitely you know right on schedule for everybody who called him like a basketball prodigy coming into the league but um i think that if you're going to beat the Warriors, sometimes like your your one-man band approach um you know when you're built like the mavericks are like that guy's baseline needs to be higher than lucas was in game one
0: two points kind of on that one you're the dallas shooting is a very fair point to make especially in the first half so dallas was seven of 29 and most of those looks were wide open catch and shoot and it was you know
1: oh and it was well, wasn't it three for sixteen in the first quarter, and they had yeah, one something possession. like they had something three. like that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Let me pull it up.
0: Um yeah, it was three for nineteen yeah. in the first quarter. Oh, nineteen.
1: Jeez. Well, and they had one possession. They had three three-point attempts. I thought all of them were clean looks, and they just missed three in a row. And it's like, come right. on, guys, like you're not going to beat the Warriors and chase if you're doing this. And,
0: and then the other one is a, a parallel between this series and the other, and and also like the success that some of these teams, especially the Celtics, had in the previous round, is part of the reason why having multiple high level defenders is really valuable is what it allows you to do for like a driving player. So we saw this in, in a Chase Center on Wednesday night where Luka would drive and Andrew Wiggins would make it hard on him, he's you know, trying to get by there. And then either Draymond Green or Kevon Looney or sometimes both are waiting there around the basket. And so it's not just what Luka one of the things he did so well against the Suns is see when Deandre Ayton is at the top of the key guarding Kleiva or somebody else attack and all you have to do is beat one guy you get downhill and if they overreact then you're getting an open corner three or open wherever you want it or you're getting a layup or dunk and we saw Luka do all, all of those things during the Sun series and part of that is due to the personnel and I mean Jay Crowder is a good defender he's just not good in that kind of backline role and it requires a lot of your help communication and early in the series I thought like Devin Booker was pulling off the corner too early and like we saw that in the Boston series where Boston Bucks where Drew Holiday is you know Know, in the times he got by his man and then all of a sudden Al Horford's there or I mean Giannis was doing that and and the ability to have a second line defender it makes all of it better because it also means that the first defender can be a little bit more aggressive because they know they have something behind him. Yeah, look, I mean, if
1: Wiggins starts to get into serious foul trouble against Luka, which could happen at some point in the series, I do think the entire approach is going to look less effective than it did in game one. I mean, there's just going to be probably some of those moments, right? But if he's staying out of foul trouble and he's playing just good, solid textbook defense, stay in front of Luka, don't jump on his pump fakes, um, hound him up and down the court like you mentioned earlier, and then you've got Draymond uh, you know, lurking in the back and you've got a whole bunch of guys who play hard and together on the backside to rotate and contest shots like ben that's the exact personnel that you want to have to match up with Dallas's setup, and you And know, it's interesting to me, the frontline matchups in this series, right? Because, uh, you know, you look at uh, Dallas versus Phoenix. Like I felt like Aiden, you know, he, that, that's a, an issue. That's a, a, a hiccup when he's got to deal with these spread fives and, you know, he's getting called into all sorts of stuff away from the basket. I, I don't feel like he's, you know, some slow footed cement block center. Right. But still he's getting tested in those spots when Golden State goes to the looks like they're going to be able to hang you know if you're bringing in Porter or whoever else around Draymond like they're going to be able to hang no problem Um, you know kind of no matter how small Dallas wants to go I mean they're they're just a better matchup personnel wise and it was just kind of a hole for for Phoenix at that four spot of like who can you play as a center and they just kind of didn't figure it out and flip it around I feel like Golden State was so much more comfortable attacking Dallas's front line than they were against Memphis's front line in the second round like Jaron Jackson Jr. got Into an awful lot of foul trouble, but he also caused an awful lot of issues uh, for Golden State just because he's that air traffic control type defender in the back, flying around, contesting shots, super long, cleaning the glass. Uh, You know, once they got Adams back, you know, his physicality gave Golden State some issues um, in in a couple of those games as well for Memphis, and then just even their wing length. You know, I
0: thought in in size uh, bothered Golden State a little bit more. Like Memphis was just flying all around the floor; their hands were everywhere, and Dallas will get better they improved in that respect over the course of the phoenix series but you felt memphis a lot more defensively like as somebody who was at who's been at every chase center game memphis was more present defensively in those games than the the mavericks were last night
1: well no question about it just you know imagine you're jordan Poole or steph curry and like you you turn the corner do you want to turn the corner and look at maxi or do you want to turn the corner and look at jaron jackson jr and steven adams you know it's like a no-brainer And I just thought that Golden State, you know, with all their cuts and and with all their, you know, stuff going towards the basket, their paint points last night, they just felt much freer to me than they did in that second round. And Steph made a comment along those lines that kind of Memphis maybe like scrambled them a little bit or like threw off their offense, um, you know, for some stretches during the second round. We could definitely see them kind of, you know, overthinking, getting into some of the turnover issues, you know, maybe settling for not the best shots. And I think that they match up better offensively against Dallas to me uh, than they did against. Memphis. I don't know if you feel the
0: same. I broadly do, but I think Dallas's defense will look better in time, but generally speaking, I mean, the Warriors have historically had more problems with athletic defenders than anything else. Like, that's the the group thing, because there's there's an element of like, oh crap, they're just in this place than you anticipated. And Memphis, they were so aggressive and they've been such a fantastic turnover team, in some ways, especially without jaw on the floor. And so they were able to get on to some of the Warriors' pet stuff and they're like Nate and I were talking about it last night in person where Steph Curry had a couple of just like looping passes that would have been one of which just like eventually I think Wiggins got it or somebody else and those would have been pick sixes <laughs> against Memphis because there there's somebody's gonna get there and the other place uh, the last thing I want to say on game one of that series is Andrew Wiggins also deserves praise for making Luka work defensively and the Warriors have a different structure to their offense and I think the Mavericks were too afraid of putting Luka in some of the other defensive matchups Clay and Steph will have some success at his expense like that that'll happen but what jason kidd the the biggest mistake that i think he made and as you mentioned i think he's done a phenomenal job overall in these playoffs is it's what do you what are you willing to give up and what do you want to prevent and i think they were so zealous preventing especially in the first half the warriors getting open looks from three from their best guys that they gave up 80 you know the Warriors shot 81 percent on twos in the first half and that I think the risk calculus is a little bit different than that, and Luka's going to get cooked a couple of times, and if that's going to be the case, but you can't give up those drives, and I expect to see, maybe it'll take until game three, but I think we'll see a different Memphis, or sorry, Dallas defensive philosophy, and that could look better in the series, even if it's very different than what they did against Phoenix.
1: Well, I mean, that is another aspect to the whole vintage throwback angle as well, right? I mean, how many times, like, those old Cavaliers teams would have two or three guys on step, and somebody's peeling towards the paint wide open for a layup or a dunk, right? Like, used to uh, you know, just see those, like, escape hatch guys that have success. And if Wiggins is, you know, whatever you want to call him, the third or the fourth option, and he's getting into situations where he's backing guys down in the paint, he's getting mismatches against Brunson, and he's, you know, tossing in turnarounds over the top of a smaller defender, or, you know, um, or if he's knocking down his wide-open threes uh, like he did early in that game, like, Golden State is going to be very, very difficult to beat in that situation because their main guys are, are going to show up in the big moments. So um, Wiggins, to me, does feel like maybe the number one ex- factor remaining in these playoffs um, you know i feel like if he plays well I, golden state's the favorite i don't understand at all by the way some of these projection models saying golden state was fourth coming into the um the conference finals like uh, i mean you're the numbers guy Danny. make that make sense
0: <laughs> oh boy oh boy um yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but i uh, I don't want to give short shrift to what Miami did in in game one. And and I mean, Boston, like, so we talked about the difference between these two games is that Boston had everything go right for them in the first half. Jason Tatum was spectacular. And the Celtics offense looked amazing. They were making tough shots, but they were also getting those, you know, Tatum's assists, five of which, like, many of them were alley-oops to Robert Williams and, like, some great finishes and everything else. And the shots they took, and, and a lot of the credit here goes to Miami's defense, were a lot tougher in that third quarter that's why I thought it was kind of the blueprint and I talked about Jimmy Butler's defense before but the possession game and the turnover game as they are in seemingly every high level NBA playoff contest are going to be so central because Miami both these teams and we to, to their immense credit they understood at the very outset like the only the best way we're going to get points is by running and just pushing off of rebounds, pushing off of steals, doing everything you can but Miami once they were able to get those through turnovers and steals they were really cooking with gas
1: yeah for sure i mean look as- as, as these games unfold, like on Boston's offense, I, I really do feel like they miss Smart. Uh, I'll be the first to admit when they trade Kemba with no like discernible plan for how to, you know, find a starting point guard, like true point guard. And when they go the shooter route and it doesn't work, and then they just cut bait with Schroeder, I still doubted, like, is Smart going to be able to kind of fill this role effectively for them as, uh, you know, a connector, as a, a ball handler, bringing the you know, bringing the ball up the court on offense, getting guys like Tatum and Brown into their spots and, and you know, just keeping the ball moving around the perimeter. I just always viewed him as too shot happy, not the world's best decision maker, and just a little bit – too erratic for my liking. And I think when you're, you know, looking at that game, like down the stretch when it starts to get away from Boston, like it'll be very difficult for Tatum to just like have a one man shootout and keep up with Miami given how their offense is balanced and, and given what a high level Jimmy's playing at. And I just feel like they really miss Marcus Smart in that spot of like, all right, well, we have to generate open looks. We have to have good flow, um, you know, across an entire game. And that's what Smart has brought to the table, you know, throughout this postseason, definitely did it against Milwaukee. And I I, to be honest pretty surprised like he he's he performed above my expectation obviously you know what you're going to get defensively you know what you're going to get rebounding hustle wise and all that stuff and flocking wise <laughs> as well but sure. uh you know the offensive impact for him to me was was great in the second round and was missing in game one
0: it was and it's been so weird like I mean, you got to see some of it in the bubble like the, the the shifts in Derek white's confidence and aggressiveness as a shooter from year to year from week to week week from game to game are incredible and he you know I mean I, I'm sympathetic he was you know had had some bad misses in the first half of, the, of, of game one and then just never really quite got there and Miami also did a they got a clear understanding of kind of what routes they could jump you know, kind of use a football analogy and that worked a lot better for them okay they know this is going to be handoff or this is the way that pass is going to work and get a hand in there you're not going to get a steal every time but you could get a deflection slow down their offense make them work and I mean Boston only taking 15 shots from the field in that third quarter. Fifth, I mean, some of that was because Miami got a bunch of offensive rebounds and also forced a ton of turnovers and everything else. But like that, that And they only made two of those 15, um, which was incredible.
1: Yeah. And, no, that's a sign of a disruptive defense, right? It's sort of like, uh, remember that huge stretch? Uh, I think it was the second quarter of Game 5, Grizzlies versus Warriors where like the Warriors couldn't even get a shot up for like four or five minutes yeah, straight because they kept yeah. throwing the ball out of bounds. That's what a, a high-level disruptive defense with those guys who are getting up on your chest and just making you sweat, making you uncomfortable, which is sort of what Miami does. Um, that's kind of been their trademark for years and years under SPO. That's how it shows through, it is, you know, just way too many turnovers, not enough field goal attempts, and very low field goal percentage.
0: Plenty more with Ben Golliver, but first a message from betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering needs, including live betting and, of course, your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It is really easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up today and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Remember, that's CLNS50 for your 50% welcome bonus. also tells them that you came from us, which we really appreciate. So check it out at BetOnline, where the game starts. When you are running through the different things that you've done over the last week, one of them was that you were in Chicago for the lottery and I believe the first section of the combine stuff. What was that experience like?
1: It was really fun. I I didn't actually do any of the combine stuff. I just basically got down to that draft lottery drawing room. And, you know, it it was so funny, Damien, that like the lead story that a number of people were there is like just in case the Lakers pick jumps way up, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like the ultimate like schadenfreude (laughs) of like failure because it... And they're missing out on this huge asset. I mean, a whole bunch of people were sort of like there with the express purpose of like writing the Lakers take another L story, uh, which I was not. But I thought it was funny that a lot of people did that. Um, it, it obviously didn't come to pass that way. Um, I don't know if it was a gigantic headline with Orlando winning um, the lottery, but it, it was Funny to me because the guy they had in the draft lottery drawing room was basically their PR guy for the last 30 years, right? And so he has original ping-pong balls from the Shaq draft, from the Chris Webber draft, from the Dwight Howard draft as his lucky charms. And then he's just like very eagerly chasing down the winning ping-pong ball to kind of add to their collection of these number one picks. And then as soon as they let us out of this drawing room where everybody's sequestered and you don't get to have the phones and you you can't contact the outside world and everything else, he just makes a beeline. Uh, for their front office. I mean, he's just so excited. Like, we did it. We won. He just wants to kind of join the party. And then, like, within two minutes, Danny, he had to just go back to his normal job of being a PR guy. And so he's, like, taking group photos of the front office celebrating and, like, Jamal Mosley. And then he's, like, coordinating the interviews for all the writers who are there to kind of talk to, uh, you know, John Hammond and, and their front office guys, Jeff Weltman, in terms of, like, what they want to do going forward with this pig. And it was like this incredible roller coaster. I, mean, I just can't imagine being like the, the head of PR for an NBA organization, especially one like uh, Orlando, which has really had a pretty tough decade here. You have this amazing moment where luck shines on you. You're kind of like the center of attention, but then within five minutes, the story shifts and you have to kind of go back to your doing your day job. It was just uh, uh, one of those humorous, uh, humorous situations that we see in the NBA. But that, I wanted that, to ask that you- leads, like, That leads
0: me to a question uh, just quickly before you ask me mine. What is the timeline for when you- So you, do you not get released from the room until the results have aired
1: correct so what happens is they basically um, get everybody into the room about an hour before the draft show starts right and it takes typically 15 to 20 minutes for them to actually do the drawing it's not a very long process but they have very exact rules about how they do it I mean it's so specific that they want to have 20 seconds between each pull of the lottery balls right and the guy who counts the 20 seconds so that he won't be influenced by any other like uh, variables of you know looking at people or eye contact or anything like that he actually turns his back to the lottery ball machine with a stopwatch and counts out to 20 and when it, he reaches 20 he puts his hand up in the air as the signal uh, to the guy who's pulling the ball so they have all these little weird quirks to like make sure the process goes very specifically according to plan but it doesn't take very long because you're just basically drawing four ping pong balls four times and in this case they actually had to do a fifth draw because Houston won twice and they only had one pick, so they had to kind of redo it. Um but, uh, you know, you're, you're done within 15 to 20 minutes. And so then now you have another about half an hour or so of time to kill. And everyone's, you know, just basically schmoozing. So everybody in the room knows who won. So we went up to talk to uh, Joel Glass, the, the communications guy for the Magic, and ask him his story, of you know, what was his uh, lucky charms and all that. You know Sam Presti was in that room. And, you know, he was very open and, and having a great conversation with a number of writers just about the draft and, and how important it is for them. And could you make the process better? and all these kinds of things. And so we're we're chatting you know for about a half an hour. and then they put the draft uh, lottery broadcast on in the room so we can watch everybody w- what you see at home on television, right? And so it was just so funny to watch, you know, Sam, when he won the number two pick um, for OKC, he had a completely straight face. Like, he did not react at all with a complete stone face, right? But when he watched Nick Collison on stage win the win the number two pick, he started laughing and clapping, like, huge smile on his face because he was, like, you know, getting the secondhand experience of watching Nick Collison's happiness. So it's just very funny, these little psychological things uh, of how this plays out. And then as soon as um, Mark Tatum reveals the number one pick, they open up the door and then we can kind of like rush over to the adjacent ballroom where the draft lottery drawing uh, was, uh, or sorry, where the, Broadcast was taking place. And so the, the magic PR guy, he was the first one out the door. He just, you know, shot out of a cannon, wanted to go and, and meet up with their group. And they had a nice little celebration right by the stage. And, uh, you know, guys like Chet Holmgren and some of their prospects are just sort of milling around. You see a number of the big agents are just in that room, um, kind of hanging out afterwards and uh you know it was you know it's just one of the weirdest things the nba does frankly you know people are writing down the lottery drawing numbers by hand on this on this billboard and it's just uh you know it's a goofy scene but awesome. um, the question i had for you on on orlando so You know, they got kind of a a real choice here at number one. It's not like, you know, the Zion draft or the LeBron draft or even the Dwight Howard draft or the Shaq draft, right? Where there's going to be some back and forth about what you do. So, on the one hand, with Chet, their front office loves length, right? Like they're the Giannis uh, guys who drafted Giannis. You know, they always tend to go for the long athletic guys. That would seem to be possibly Chet. There's the Jalen Subs connection, right? Where they both are from Minnesota and both went to Gonzaga. But at the same time, like, Not all of those long picks have worked. Like Mo Bamba, yeah, was that a good decision or not? I don't know. Does that hang over the idea of like, do you take another center there and then you flip it around? um, A player like Jabari Smith, I think some people would say like, you know, much lower bust potential than Chet, right? They had a terrible offense last year. He would plug pretty naturally into what they're trying to do positionally. And so I was just wondering, like, do you, which way do you lean? Do you think it's going to be Chet? Do you think it's going to be Jabari? Do you think it's going to be somebody else? at that number one spot. And do you think like their reputation for always wanting to get the longest guy will actually favor Chet or could it come back to bite them? Because maybe they're nervous that like, well, he might, you know, he might be great, but he also might have a downside. Are they going to get scared off of the downside? Because this isn't like drafting Giannis 15th where there's no pressure, right? This is the number one pick that you just waited 10, 10 plus years to get. I mean, almost 20 since your last number one pick, but you know it's been a long time for them.
0: It has been a long time for them. And I think that there is a lot of pressure on the Magic to get it right. And there are real options. Now, I've I've started my draft work. I haven't actually watched Jabari Smith yet. I've watched my film. I just finished my film on Chad Holmgren today. And those questions are fair. I don't think they're going fo- to... The, the, they value length, but I think also possession, the positional versatility, if Jabari Smith has that, I've heard a little bit about that, that could be compelling for them too because the Magic are still trying to figure out everything else. For me, the more fascinating question is... On a related note, considering this draft class is best available versus best fit. So let's say maybe it's due to how much they love length or they just think he's the best player. The magic think that Chet Holmgren is the best prospect in this draft. It just so happens that one of the brightest stars in the Magic system right now is Wendell Carter, who has had a very nice run so far. And they have power forward options, including, I mean, Franz Wagner can play both the three and the four, but I I think personally Franz Wagner is a natural four. And Jonathan Isaacs, presumably coming back, you know, at some point. And they have a lot of other options. Potentially I mean Bomba played a lot with Wendell last year and all these other things. And so the question becomes at an another point let's if they think Chet holmgren is the best do they run that do they roll those dice of drafting somebody on the top of one of your bright your best young players and putting that pressure but i i was just talking with somebody recently about the Cavs' decision and kobe altman made a bold step drafting darius garland the year after they drafted colin sexton and that's why you bet on your board is that if you think player x is better than player y unless you're going to pull a danny ainge markel fultz Jason Tatum move and bet on your board by moving down and saying these players are virtually the same to us and we're gonna get all these other assets for it, you you owe it to yourselves to take the player that you think is best. Because that that's the the decision that you have that you'll be able to live with. And saying this guy is Overlapping, or he, you know, he doesn't fit exactly with what we're trying to do. It's like those things will shift in time. But if you, if you think that this player is the best, and I'm not sure that they'll think Chet is, like, I'm not saying, I'm not using that to presuppose it, but it becomes a more stressful decision if that ends up being the case.
1: Yeah. So I, I actually think that you could, you could play Chet at four alongside Wendell Carter Jr., and I think that would actually work out pretty well. Um, just because Carter's a little bit, uh, sturdier, he can handle the, the, the more, Interior-minded assignments and Chet can handle. Uh, he can cover more ground, be a good help defender, and you know switch and, and pick and rolls and all that. I think that would actually work out um, pretty well. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't, to me, I don't view that as like a, a hangup, you know, it's sort of, you, you mentioned Cleveland as an example. It's sort of like, you know, was the presence of Jared Allen, a potential all-star going to hold them back from taking Mobley? The answer was no. Instead, they just wanted to build this gigantic front line that could just squash everybody. And Orlando in a position to do the same thing. I mean, if you're going three, four, five with Jonathan Isaac, Chet, and Wendell Carter Jr., that could be a pretty good team pretty quick. You know, yeah, or, I mean, I don't know how Fra- long Franz it would take Franz
0: like 6'10 himself. Like, that's- that's plenty right. that's plenty long too and yeah. they also like you can kind of diversify your front court portfolio which i think is going to happen either way the the top three guys as you know preliminarily i'm seeing it are all front court guys and and maybe ivy can work his way into this conversation and that is another question for another day but i like both smith from what i know about him and chet holmgren in orlando on the idea that they provide something different than they have and there's star potential and and with holmgren you brought up you know of playing in power forward. He primarily played power forward at Gonzaga. And that a lot of that was due yep. to the presence and lack of defensive versatility of Drew Timmy, a wonderful player. That's just, you know, that's not what he does super well. And Holmgren also, his extreme skinniness can uh, he has these natural kind of like help instincts at the four and it suited him well I think part of that is just he has good defensive instincts and applied them at the four because that's the position he was playing but you could see that and you could see Wendell Carter being an important part of the rotation there are a lot of different answers here and like you, you've been brought up like that's again why you go best player available is because you can make it work whether that's by playing those players together or by theoretically moving one of them down the line
1: yeah uh, to me he's going to be a four especially to start his NBA career I look at it a little bit like young Anthony Davis or Evan Mobley, where like th- the main benefit of Chet right now is the defensive versatility and the help side and the shot blocking that you're getting. Not necessarily like the on ball low post defensive stuff. Like that's good too, but it's more about like let him rove, let him cover ground, um, and let him just kind of ooze talent. And that's sort of you know the, the blueprint um, for what they're trying to do. I, I do think if if Orlando goes Jabari um, and the idea is like, look, he fits as well. And and what Jeff Wellman said to me was, look, we are going off of talent and character. You know, we do not care about fit. So, he's sort of, you know, telegraphing exactly what you were describing, but if they decide, look, Jabari's got really no red flags, he's going to be a big-time scorer, he's going to fit in, you know, defensive-wise and be a real versatile defender, and again, you could put these crazy lineups out with him and Isaac and Vodner, and, and that's an awful lot of length as well. Um, if they go that direction, I definitely think OKC's taking Chet at, too, right? I mean, everybody's going to point to the Poku thing of, like, well, you know, we, we know you know Sam Presti's not afraid to, like, you know, go for, like, a unique body type or whatever else. I just think that Chet was so smart to go to Gonzaga and go to a basketball program that was only about basketball. You know, there's, it's in a small place, like, there's no distractions. He is somebody who seems to me to be pretty obsessed with the sport after watching him a little bit during the NCAA tournament and the uh, West Coast Conference tournament. like He just seems like ball is life for him. And, and even at the draft lottery yesterday, or, or a couple days ago, I should say, he didn't want to leave. Like, he was just hanging out. You know, like, he didn't have any other place, you know, better place to Go quote unquote, and sometimes you see guys come in with their entourages, and they, you know they, they run out of there because you know presumably they got someplace to go celebrate or, or who knows. Chuck um, so was just hanging out, having a good time, and and so uh, to me like that's what OKC is all about. You know, it's it's the old stories about the the dog food factories that Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook used to like you know go to the practice facility across the street from and you know wake up super early. It's that college program like mentality. I think uh, OKC would just be a natural fit from a personality wise. And it would also help keep some of the pressure off of Chet as he develops. I think that this team uh, breakdown actually broke perfectly for Chet, because if he goes to either Orlando or Oklahoma City, you're not getting that big market glare, right? Like you're going to have all of basketball Twitter following your every move. But if you get into a lot of foul trouble as a young big, if people push you around, if you get posterized, if there's some tough moments in the first couple of years as your body starts to mature a little bit and you get used to the pro game, you're not going to be at Madison Square Garden dealing with that, right? Like You're not going to be in some of these other just um, higher pressure environments and it's sort of like the Markel Fultz thing with Orlando where it was a natural place for him to go have a second chapter because you could just do it away from all the attention and the scrutiny. Um, I think that either one of those places could be really good incubators for a guy in Chet who I love. I really like his long-term potential, but I do think it's going to Take him a while to get there and i think either one of those spots could uh would be good landing get landing
0: places those are all good points that i will add in there's also in both of those locales and you could add houston here as well not an immediate pressure to be dominant early and if, if it ends up taking Holmgren some time orlando is not if they can make the playoffs great but they're, they're not trying to push the accelerator right now they could they could wait a year or two it's, sam prestes they've got Go ahead. Sorry. No, go
1: Sorry. ahead. I was just, no, they've got nothing but time. I mean, yeah. like, they, you know, they just blew it up in 2021. Orlando did. And, uh, you know, the Thunder just blew it up after the bubble, right? So they both view themselves as being very early in the stage of that rebuilding program. So I totally agree.
0: And they also both have. Enough surrounding talent that, like, so playing along with if, if Holmgren goes to OKC with Shea Gildas Alexander and Josh Giddy and some of the other things they're building, and he can help give both of those teams not only a defensive identity, Oklahoma City, I think they've actually played above their talent level on defense the last couple of years. I really like Mark Dagnald as a coach. And adding somebody like Holmgren who can deter shots and can also key them in transition could be, make them, could, could shift kind of the way we think about the Thunder. And it's just, it could be a similar story with the magic as well i wanted to close we're not going to spend a lot of time on this but like i mean i've started doing off-season preview work for the athletic and for dunked on and if i were applying kind of the the fundamentals of this year to where i was where the league was 10 years ago i would say like this is in line for a quiet off season you have a pretty weak free agent okay. class you have very few teams with cap space a couple of them are compelling but very few teams with cap space you have a lot of star talent under long-term contract and a lot of of them almost all of them are in competitive situations like the best of the best maybe they weren't this year or they were hurt or something else but like you know they, they should be in the mix like I think that's a fair way of putting it we'll see with some of them but normally speaking you would say okay that's going to lead to a relatively calm off season. however relatively calm off seasons don't seem like they ever happen in the NBA anymore <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing
1: of the past. I think the number one factor why is desperate superstars, Danny. You know, look yes. at LeBron, look at Kevin Durant, and look at Joel Embiid. All three of those guys are 10 out of 10 desperate right now to win. You know, the Lakers' nightmare season. LeBron's been home forever. He's he's so bored he's doing Twitter Q&As like three times a week. You know, it's like, all right, uh, we get it. Like, you haven't played basketball in way too long. Kevin Durant, the season was so tough with Kyrie Irving that he hopped on a jet and went as far away. Away from Brooklyn as possible to go watch basketball in Greece because he had to get away from the the end of their season, which was a complete and utter disaster. And then the Philadelphia 76ers, um, they might face more pressure than anybody. You know, Embiid is, as I wrote last week, you know, he was pitched as the next Shaq, like this, you know, big man who's going to be the face of the sport, take over the entire league, dominate, win all these MVPs. He's turned into the next Barkley. You know, he can't get to the conference finals, he can't get over the hump and win the MVP award. The Philadelphia 70, uh, City Council, I should say, awarded him the most valuable Philadelphian made-up award because they felt so bad for him. I'm sorry, that's not going to make him feel better. Like, that's only going to make it worse. It's going to only make it more annoying that he hasn't gotten the sort of validation after eight seasons that he was been, he's been seeking. Right, and so I think all those teams have explosive potential. If I was Brooklyn, I would think long and hard about moving on from the Kyrie Irving experience. Um, I would just want to be out of the Kyrie business. It's not worth it. You know, the juice is not worth the squeeze, as they say. If I was the Lakers, um, yeah, obviously, you want to trade Russell Westbrook come hell or high water. And if you're the 76ers, you have a crazy difficult decision. What do you do with James Harden? And can you really pitch that to Embiid as the number two guy who's going to help get him over the hump when you've got all these other contenders in the East Now that um, are better built for the playoffs than the Sixers are and they're probably not going to have Danny Green next year because of that uh, horrific injury that he had right at the you know in the final game of the season so to me the pressure is on all three of those organizations to do something drastic and as we saw with the Lakers trade for Westbrook last year doing something drastic does not mean something good necessarily right. like it could be weird and horrible it can blow up in your face
0: and and the other x factor in this offseason and this will parallel some of the other ones we've seen i was thinking little bit about 2020, is... Not super mega stars, but like kind of the next tier down, agitating. And so, what happens with Bradley Beal? It looks like Damian Lillard's going to stay in Portland and see where this thing goes, and that's what he wants to do. He he has earned the right to choose his future, and if that's in Portland, great. And those two players are 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 central. That Donovan Mitchell, what he's too you know he's too far away from free agency to like you know to necessarily do it. But generally speaking, the arc of the NBA is if a player really really wants. Out, unless they're Eric Gordon in New Orleans, all those years ago, they're going to get their way. And
1: I, well, at the very least, he he's got to do a him or me thing, right? With Rudy, yeah, the, I mean, at
0: th- that point, th- I, I, I yeah. mean, D- Danny Ainge might be like, "That's fu-, like you don't need to even say it." Like, I want, to, I have a different theory of this team. I don't, I don't. That's generally the way things have worked with Danny Ainge in the past. But th- so that's and and those two things could sing together: the desperate kind of major stars and major markets, and these maybe lower level. I mean, what what level? player bradley beal is next year is a big looming question that i don't have a good answer to and some of those might sync up some of them might not because those teams are pretty asset poor you know like if donovan mitchell says i want to be somewhere else I don't see the Lakers, the Brooklyn Nets, the Philadelphia 76ers having enough juice to make it happen, but right. we'll see some reshuffling, and I sometimes when things look more stable, the reshuffling actually gets more severe because it has to come from somewhere.
1: Absolutely, and I, you know, a couple other teams just to mention, you know, Phoenix... Uh, that seemed awful, um, com- combustive. <laughs> you know, at the at the end of the season, there the eight in question looms. Chris Paul, like, what's going on there? Is he has he reached a desperation stage where he would want to look for something else, or they might want to go a different direction because of how much money he makes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's strong reasons to try to run it back, but it's very difficult to talk yourself into that being another finals team next year if, if you don't have a, uh, some sort of a major shakeup. And you know, we can always doubt whether they're going to want to spend the money. Um, you know, with that group and. Their team is Chicago with Zach Levine. I mean, of, of all the like more traditional, like a guy has a big free agency decision, he's going to get some interest. And um, I feel like that might be the one this year. That's you know less about guys under contract agitating and more just about like, well, it, was this the right spot for him? Uh, is Chicago willing to pay him every last dollar? Uh, what does their future look like if they do? Would they be better off trying to do something else? Um, you know, it'll probably get resolved in a straightforward fashion. He'll make a lot of money, and they'll go forward and. Try to build on a you know a step forward type season like they had last year, but it's no guarantee, um, and we'll have to see.
0: Yeah, and in that front, the other element that will be a huge part of the 22 offseason are extensions for guys that aren't pending free agents. And so, how will those how will, what teams line up their features? What situations are kind of looming into next year? I have a piece that's coming out in the Athletic about this front very soon. And some part of the reason why that's going to be important is that a lot of these teams don't have a ton of flexibility, and they can't afford to just let their player. walk. And so will some of these teams either pay pony up a little bit just to secure it? Or will the players take a little bit less because they don't want to take the risk of being in a walk here? And how much... Uncertainty can these franchises bear? Is it is it going to be a you know like is it going to be a circumstance where it's like where it seems like it's a looming thing over it? And the extension system is mostly fixed. The situation that led to Kevin Durant becoming an unrestricted free agent in sixteen Does, that's not going to repeat because star players are generally taking care. of But that doesn't mean everybody. Is.
1: Yeah, last team you mentioned uh, on my end, uh, Portland. You know, sure. from a desperation standpoint, they've been telegraphing like we're trying we're trying to be in the mix. You know, Joe Cronin wants to make a signature move. He tore everything down. Now he needs to build it back up. So I think that. They're- are going to try to be um, movers and shakers. I was going to ask you real quick on the extensions. I mean, so many of these get done now for prominent players early. How do you feel just as, like, you know, an observer, like a media member? Like, do you like the, uh, I guess, the explosion of extensions? um, Or did you prefer the previous model where we got more guys actually getting to free agency and, you know, doing the tours of different cities where they're, you know, putting up pictures of you with the jersey, you know, like the Carmelo Anthony tours and all that. Uh, I feel like some of the extensions have just Taken a little bit out of fun, out of it. I get why they, why they exist, but just like as a pure observer, uh, I kind of enjoyed like when teams would try to just get like ninety million in cap space and just go crazy, and we don't really see that anymore, you know?
0: For purely selfish reasons, I miss the players hitting unrestricted free agency. It was a lot of fun. It also led to plenty of content on my end. I thought that, and because you would, get, <laughs> you would also get to see the nature of like what a player wants. I, I wrote this piece years ago for a real GM called the Third Contract, and it was about how because in those days, yeah, I mean this is still mostly true. The first contract is locked in by the rookie scale if it's a first round pick. The second is virtually for high end players locked in because the extensions have spent everything else. And the third is when you find out what a player really wants. And that could be like that was when LeBron went to Miami, that's when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors and everything else. And there are, there are lower end players, that's when Jeremy I believe that's when Jeremy Grant went to the Pistons instead of going with the Nuggets. And we're <laughs> seeing more of that with extensions. I, I'm happy for players because the biggest thing that that does is it mitigates a ton of risk for them. And I fully support that. I think that's you know great for them if that if that's what they want to do awesome and you know and and the level of stability that Giannis gave the Bucks in twenty twenty slash twenty one by signing that extension I think that was an important part of them winning the championship that year and the, you know that and, and you could say that's how they got Drew Holiday was that he you know that that they were desperate enough to do it but then it did end up happening they did win the championship but for my own enjoyment yeah I li- I liked it when they were when players got out there and and also it opened up the universe a little bit more so a lot of teams were going to end up striking out and we're going to do that but then that also opened up other possibilities and so you could see players kind of change teams in a different sort And like Nate and I were just doing our offseason preview for the Sixers and we were talking about how few places there are that really make sense in a Tobias Harris trade and if there were more teams with cap space if there were more teams with flexibility it would still be hard because he's he's incredibly overpaid but there's less flexibility around the league so that means you need more complicated stuff however the And I'll end with this. There is still enough creativity within front offices. And I think generally, partially because they have more personnel and because the league has gotten more proactive over the years, that just because there's less flexibility doesn't mean there's zero. And Miami getting Kyle Lowry is a fantastic example of that. Like they, being able to pull that off and being able to get PJ Tucker while staying under the hard cap was a bit of mastery. And Andy Ellsberg is the best in the business at, at that wizardry. But you can still make things happen, you just have to.
1: For sure. Well, and the, you know, the log jam effect that you're talking about with teams not having the, the flexibility and all that, that is what, you know, that's a bad combination when teams get desperate and when superstars get desperate, right? Because that's when, you, when you're when only out is to give up three or four or five years of your draft picks going forward and swaps and all that stuff. We're, we're already seeing that come back to bite uh, a few very prominent teams. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see a team or two this summer say, well, look, this is our only option. You know, if we need to get Joel Embiid help or if we need to get Player X help, the only thing we can do, because we don't have the ability to sign anybody outright and we don't have a lot of young players to kind of sweeten things up, the only thing we can do is mortgage our future. And the precedent has been set. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I expect to kind of see it again, frankly. Um, and and then we'll see how it goes. Yeah,
0: we will see. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on, my friend. Thanks, Danny. Great to chat, man. Take care. Thanks again. To ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at the Washington Post where he is a national NBA writer. You can also read his book, Bubble Ball, and you can also listen to the Greatest of All Talk podcast that he does with Andrew Sharp, which is really great. And if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. He's right. he said at the intro. it been a while. Um, He and I talk sometimes not on the pod, but it was good to, to do so and to get his perspective. And I love the story on what it's like to be in the room at the lottery. It's an experience I've never had, but I think would be a lot of fun. And the dynamics with, you know, knowing the result but not getting to tell anybody and all that would be pre- would be pretty cool and then you get to watch the show knowing what happens when nobody else does. That's a different experience than a lot of us are are ever going to have. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can Subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use. And that's great for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. You can't get into a habit with it because it's when I have time, it's when my guest has time. And so you can do that, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever. You can also... Help other people find the show by leaving a rating or review in that aforementioned podcast player or telling people on social media. That can be a big help, too. And then the single most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is BetOnline. You can go there and use that CLNS50 code for a 50% welcome bonus. And then, of course, tell them that you came from us. So really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are doing Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. Lots of content right now, because not only are we talking about all the playoff games, but also starting our off-season work, including off-season previews. We recorded three of those on Thursday, and then also... I've started my draft prep. I think Nate's starting pretty soon, so we'll get into that over the next month as well, as you know, Ben and I talked about the lottery. And on top of that, we are doing live shows now again on Playback, which is this really cool new platform. We'll tweet it out each time we do it. We're going to be doing primarily the Eastern Conference games in the early going, because Nate and I are attending Warriors-Mavs games at Chase Center, but then we will be doing more throughout in in the other series and then the NBA Finals. And we love it because it's a single screen experience. You log in with your streaming and cable provider, and that means you can watch the game and listen to us in the same thing. You don't have to sync up. There's nothing else like that. It's just you're seeing it, we're seeing it, we're calling the game for you. It's so much fun, and we have a great discussion section. We answer questions during stoppages and and all that, and I really have enjoyed the experience. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. Had that piece on Harden last week, and then I have one that's coming out probably in the next day or so on extend or trade. It's an, a concept that I've talked about a little bit, but I wanted to really flesh out. And I think it's being released as a single piece. I actually wrote it as a two-parter because it's over three, like three, four thousand words. And But I think it's being released as one big old piece, which will be fun. And that should be out, I think, on Friday is the tentative publication timeline. It might get moved a little bit depending on what happens. And then Nate and I do Spotify Live on Tuesdays. Typically, that is at 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific. We take your questions. I think for like a call-in radio show, we love doing that as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, nba at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll try to reply. I do my best, but I admit that I'm not the greatest at that. And that's why, you know, it's feedback. It's you sending me things like, hey, this guest or whatever else you want to do. And that is all for now. Oh, if I didn't say the address, it's nba at gmail.com. I can't remember if I said it. I'm saying it now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.